We're going to read from the Bible. The first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 19, reading from verses 15 to 21. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offence he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And the second reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 13, reading from verses 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continual debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other co- co- what other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. This is God's word. Thanks, Jimmy, for reading. Do, uh, do keep the first reading open from Deuteronomy chapter 19. That's where we'll be spending most of our time. And let me add my welcome to Matt's and say it's very good to see you with us this morning, whether you're visiting or whether you've been away and you've come back. It's very good to have you with us this morning. Let's pray again as we look at God's words. Our Father God, as we come face to face with your law, we would ask two things, that you would find out and correct any offensive way in us, and that you would also lead us in the way everlasting, point us to the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would do this for his name's sake. Amen. So then, as Matt said earlier, we come today to the ninth commandment, which in Deuteronomy chapter 5 comes to us in these words, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's about talk, false talk, but it is about talk. And we had a clash at that point with the law of God because talk for us is cheap. Talk is cheap, words are plentiful, and deeds are precious. You might know that quote of Ross Perot, talk is cheap, words are plentiful, deeds are precious. Talk is cheap. Some of us, and I'm not going to ask you to guess who, but some of us speak up to 10,000 words a day. Uh, Words flow from us like a river. Words flood not just our mouths and our conversations and our workplaces, but uh, blogs, internet for disagree. Talk really is cheap. Words really do seem to be plentiful. It's hard to disagree. And what that means is that talk, any talk, false talk or true talk, in the end doesn't seem to amount to that much. False talk of the kind that our command will talk about, like lies, slander, gossip, 
slurring someone's character. Well, well, they kind of flow along with the great river of our words. They don't tell you that much. They don't do that much. They don't really matter that much. Word-related sins of the kind that our commandment is talking about today, slander, gossip, lies, well, they're sort of garden-variety sins. Now, they, they don't really matter. No one denies that they're there in churches, in our families, in workplaces. No one denies that, but they're sort of like common weeds. You know, they're there, but they're just not that much of a problem. And if you're going to declare war on something, well, you need to declare war on something more serious and sinister than that. If you're going to have sermons, they need to be about something more serious and important and vital than that, because talk is cheap and trivial. And yet, we come up against this commandment, and God says precisely the opposite. In this command, God declares war on false witness, false talk, false speech, speaking to someone about someone in a way that's false or unjustified. It covers the whole range of false talk in the Bible. Slander, gossip, lies, deceit. It's all covered under this heading. God uh, reserves ten commands, ten key commands for the things that he really cares most about and wants us to care about. The commands, as it were, the ten commandments that he puts in bold type, font size 24, things that are not trivial stuff, but they're about big stuff. And he uses one of these slots about talk that we think is cheap and about a sin that we think is trivial. And when we come up close to the command, as we're going to do today, looking at it in Deuteronomy chapter 19, where it's unfolded for us, we see it in action, we come up close to it and we discover why God cares about it and why we must care about it. So we're going to see a couple of things that our breaking of this commandment, our false talk, which we don't deny but we don't take seriously, is more sinister and serious than we think. And we won't stop there, so we will also think much more briefly as we close about how this command doesn't just convict us, but it also promises to change us as men and women who know Christ and are in Christ. So come with me, first of all, to see and to learn how God says false witness, our false witness, is more serious and sinister than we think. If you uh, flick to the back of your service sheets, you'll see a little outline. And I put, um, there are five little subpoints. We're going to deal with this. We'll move through them uh, quite quickly and crisply. But we see through these five ways how false witness is more serious and sinister than we think. And first of all, we see it by the company it keeps. God says, look where false witness belongs in my law. At, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the Mafia trilogy, The Godfather, in part one, we're introduced at the beginning of the film to the Corleone family, the Mafia family. And we're introduced to the Don and his sons. And, uh, of course, they're a mafia family through and through. But Michael Corleone, one of the sons, looks clean. It looks like he's clean, that he's got nothing to do with the mafiosa business, and he'll blaze a different trail. And there's a conversation with his girlfriend, Kay Adams, who's got nothing to do with the Corleone family at the beginning of that film. And she believes that he is clean. And you want to say to her, as she discovers later on in the film, that, no, don't be daft, don't be silly. Look at the company he keeps. Look at the family he's from. He hangs around with a family of murderers and criminals. And we treat false talk a little bit like that. And God says, no, look at the family it's from. Look at the company it keeps. Look at what I put it alongside with. So uh, in the Ten Commandments, we find lies, false witness, alongside murder, theft, adultery. 
and in chapter 19, if you just glance at chapter 19, the chapter we're in, if you flick back to verse 1, you'll see we've got a little heading in our Bible saying cities of refuge. Because this chapter begins with less serious sins. Everybody knows that in the world of, of crimes and in the world of sins, accidental ones, they're less serious than the malicious, intentional, deliberate ones. So this chapter begins by saying that you need cities of refuge for people who've committed manslaughter, that is accidental killing. They need somewhere to go, somewhere to be, to be safe. Um, but then as we begin to move down the chapter and we get to verse 11, uh, we're suddenly into different territory. Things are getting more serious and sinister. Verse 11, but if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then goes to one of these cities, no, you must seek him out. Verse 13, there is no place for that kind of evil in the midst of God's people. It gets more serious when we're talking about intentional, deliberate harm. And that's the territory we're in by the time we get to verse 15 in our commandment about false witness. It's deliberate harm. So here's the first thing. We've been relaxed about this law that God says we shouldn't have been relaxed with. The Lord is not relaxed about false talk. He said it's got a family likeness with murder in this sense, in that we know what we're doing when we open our mouth and speak their hand to kill someone. In the same way that a murderer knows what they're doing when they raise their hand to kill someone. It is deliberate and intentional. So how serious and sinister is false talk? God says, look at the company it keeps in my law. And then God tells us about how serious and sinister this is through the courtroom that he pictures. So I I don't know if you've ever wondered just how odd this commandment sounds. Do not steal seems simple enough. We understand those words. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. It just sounds more flowery and wordy than it needs to be. Why does God use that language? Well, it is, of course, technical, legal language about someone. It's the language of being a witness in a public court, before a judge, about someone else. And uh, let me do a straw poll at this point. So uh, if you've ever acted as a witness in a court, I want you to put your hand up. Have a look around, just see how many people are putting their hands up. That's not many. Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, put your hand back up if you've done it more than once. Interesting. You might want to follow that up afterwards. Um, um, But it's unusual. It's a rare thing. It's not an everyday thing. Not many of us give witness. So not many of us are likely to give false witness. And yet, God says that no, doing the kind of thing you do when you bear testimony, when you give witness in a court, is more common than you think. When God wants to help us understand false talk, And he wants a catch-all way of describing it in the Ten Commandments. He says, think of false witness. Think of a court. I want you to think of a court. Now, why does he do that? Well, is it not that in a courtroom, we all know that it's very, very serious? Don't we know that witness and false witness is very, very serious? It has consequences in a courtroom. And likewise with false talk. I like to say false talk is trivial, and God says, no, it's got consequences. I like to think it's hidden. God says, no, it's always public, speaking about someone to someone else, and always in the shadow of God, the judge. 
I like to say it's victimless. And God says it harms other people. So uh, the next time, anytime we speak to someone about someone, we are, as it were, to, to imagine the lights being switched on and we discover that we're not actually in a private conversation. We're in a courtroom and the recorder's on. And, and we're speaking words of great seriousness with real consequences for people. We're acting as a witness. And actually, the New Testament in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 11, goes even further than that. It escalates it. Because in James chapter 4, verse 11, picking up on this commandment, we get these words from James. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So when we slander someone, God says, actually, it's even more serious than standing up to give false witness in a court. It's like tearing up the rule book. It's like saying, tearing up God's law. And it's like going and sitting in the judge's seats. Because when we slander a brother or sister, think of a brother or sister at church, when we slander them, we kind of weigh them in the balance like a judge. And God says, who are you to judge your neighbor? This law, terrifyingly, finds us sitting in the seats of the judge, the living gods. That's what James 4 says. So this law pictures a courtroom and tells us that our slander and our backbiting is more serious than we think. But this law now comes closer to home because what this law really tells me about is me. Chapter 19, verse 15. Let's look a bit more closely at this little section. It tells me how serious this is by the heart it assumes. Let me explain. Verse 15, have a look. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offence he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. One witness is not enough. I don't know if you've ever experienced the mild insult when you turn up to maybe babysit for someone and they say, oh, oh, you, you're, you were coming. I thought, I thought it was your wife or I thought it was both of you. I see, okay. Or someone thinks, oh, you're, you're cooking? You're cooking? Okay, I was, I was sort of hoping it was going to be both of you. And uh, it's hard not to take offense at that. And, and this command actually says what it thinks of us. God says what he thinks of us on our own, left to ourselves. This law assumes I cannot be trusted, you cannot be trusted to speak about another person. Ask me for an opinion of someone. Ask me to tell you, what, what's he or she like? And this law says, naturally, I cannot be trusted. Left to myself, I'm unreliable. I have a heart that's unstable like water. I'm prone to grudges. I could put a spin on things. I could exaggerate. I could make something up. I could use words that were quite unjustified and out of place. I'm like those stretches of water, you know, where, where a river that comes to its mouth and it meets the sea and there are all sorts of currents swirling about. I'm awash with different motives. That's what this law says about me. And in fact, I'm full of one particular thing naturally, which is about to come out in verses 16 to 19, as we'll see. Let's have a look at how this law reveals the malice that is behind false witness. Verse 16. 
If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. So here really is the question, why do I get up from my chair in my office at work, go next door and tell a colleague a story about another colleague just to lower their reputation? Why do I do it? Why do I exaggerate when someone has done a bad job and I'm describing it or someone has made a mistake and I'm reporting it? Why do I enjoy criticizing others? Why is it when someone has, um, has done something wrong against me, they really have, my response is disproportionate. I pile on excessive insult about them, about their person, about their character. Why do I really relish talking about dwelling upon someone else's weaknesses? And verses 16 to 19 answer this. And they answer it by equating two things. False witness is malicious witness. Do you see that? Verse 16, if a malicious witness takes a stand. Oh, what's a malicious witness? What's, what's someone taking a stand who hates people? What, what does that look like? Well, there's going to be an investigation, verse 17 and 18. We're not told how or, or, or why. But do you see at the end of verse 18, if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against his brother. Do you see the equivalent? False witness is malicious witness. When someone gets up to speak, when we speak about someone else in disproportionate ways, unjustified ways, without any good reason, the Bible says there is always one bad reason. There is something else fueling that fire, and it is malice. It is hatred. False witness is malicious witness. Now, you couldn't, if you thought of it, script a more direct attack or rebellion against God and his character and his law than hatred of neighbor. God says love him and love our neighbor. But in our false witness, we hate our neighbor and we hate God. He's described in the Bible as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, which means, broadly speaking, he's a God of love and truth. And in breaking this command, we show ourselves naturally to be full of hate and lies, the very, very opposite of his character. So our backbiting, when we do that, we're hating our neighbor. When we slander, we are hating our neighbor. When we gossip, can you believe what she did? It's typical of her. We're hating our neighbor. We're hating our neighbor when we assassinate their character. You can expect nothing better from him. He's useless. We're hating our neighbor In our secret criticism, exaggerated criticism, slurring a character, lowering a reputation, in all these things, we are hating our neighbor. False witness is malicious witness. But there's there's one other application that we need to think about here. And and that's not um, speaking against someone else, but speaking to someone else and lying to them. So it happens... Suppose like this, maybe your wife or your husband's, you're in the habits of lying not about someone else, but to them. You lie about uh, how you've spent that money that went out of the accounts, or you lie about who was really at those work drinks, about where you were last night, and you say, well, 
she'd only overreact or he'd only get upset and draw the wrong conclusions. But in doing that, we're inviting hatred into the midst of a relationship of love, of sworn love and truth. We are inviting in and welcoming in hatred. And if we say, oh, no, come on, my lies are white lies. Uh, They're white lies. They don't really matter. They're consistent with my relationship of love. Don't accuse me of not loving my wife or my husband. Well, we have on the other side of the argument God's and his word. And he says that lies belong with hatred. He says that people who lie to each other are usually enemies, not those who are supposed to love one another. We're to put hatred out of our relationships of love. Now, we learn just how toxic it is for relationship to lie to bear false witness when we see the judgment it receives. Verses 19 to 21. Have a look there. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, you can usually tell how serious a sin or a crime is by the punishment it receives. And here, false witness receives serious and proportionate punishment. We get a little glimpse of that and how perjury is treated uh, in our country's law. But, but I want to draw, draw out something that um, God says about how we should treat this sin of false witness in the church, in our own community, in the church. And it comes from that little phrase, You must purge the evil from among you. That's the purpose of of all the punishments, that there should not be this evil among us. It is a zero-tolerance approach where we've been tolerant. God says, no, you mustn't be tolerant. It's uh, it's toxic for relationships, lies break relationships. There'll be people here who'll be hurting because people have spoken against them, spoken about them, have said unjustified things about them. Lies break relationships relationships. But actually, this phrase, purge the evil from your midst, it's not, and it never was, a social measure for a healthy society or a healthy group of people. It was a safety measure because in our presence is a holy God. We're living with a holy God in the midst of Christ Church Mayfair. He's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, as as we've said, a God of love and truth. And his law is is of love for him and for our neighbor. And nothing misrepresents our God more than hatred and lies. It must have no place in God's people. Well, at the end of these verses, this little portion of the law, we've seen and discovered that what we've said about others and the way we've said it, we've shown ourselves to be guilty of serious and sinister law-breaking, of the kind we never thought ourselves possible. We've shown that we're not naturally for our neighbor, for love of our neighbor, but rather naturally we're prone to hatred of our neighbor, to malice, to pull them down in order to puff ourselves up. And uh, it's at this point in God's law, always this point where we feel most condemned, that we discover a very gracious and kind purpose in God's law. God purposes to bring us to this point in order that we might confess to him. Not that we, when we confess, we find that there's a judge who condemns, but we find that there's a saviour who cleanses and forgives us, who by his spirit pours love into our hearts. If, uh, if you're not a Christian, 
And let me say as an aside, it's, it's a curious thing that in the Bible and in the Christian gospel, that the, the way back from being a lawbreaker to come into relationship with God and be a lawkeeper is by words. It begins with words. So this sin is a sin that begins with our words. Well, the solution also lies in words that we say back to God's, what the Bible calls confession. And it's a strange thing because we've been talking today about false witness, standing up and speaking against someone else without good reason. But confession is really taking the stand against ourselves. It's really standing up not to speak falsely, but to speak truly and honestly about ourselves before God. The way back to God is to confess that we are guilty of this sin of hating our neighbor and to confess before him. And the promise is that we will not find him to be a judge who condemns, but a savior who cleanses us by the blood of Jesus Christ. But as we trust in the Christ by faith, we don't stop there with this command. We're urged by our New Testament reading, the second reading Jimmy read, to to make a second approach on this command, to approach it a second way, and not discover this time how prone we are to natural hatred, but rather to see how we're able to express a new love. We're going to see this much more briefly now as we close. We're going to see that when the law forbids false witness, it teaches us love for our neighbor. Now that uh, could seem like a strange thing to us. How can something that's saying no, on no account do that, how can that be saying yes? How can something so negative be saying something so positive as love, love your neighbor? Well, think of uh, a parent with two children, an older one and a younger one. And the older one, well, the older one should know better, but um, bites, kicks, pulls the hair of the other. And the parent has to introduce all sorts of commands. Don't bite, don't pull the hair of the other. And it's full of no's. But actually, all those commands could be summed up positively. You could put it like this. Love your brother or sister. All those no's are gathered up by a positive one. Love your brother or sister. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 says much the same. He says all the no's, all the commandments that you can think of. And he lists them and then says, well, well, and any other commandment that God gives. All those no's can be summed up with a yes, with a positive. Love your neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And it's no less true in this commandment against false witness. And I'm going to suggest, apply just two ways to us in which love flows out of this command, in which this command teaches us to love our neighbor. And very simply and briefly, in what we don't say and what we do say. What we don't say, first of all. Uh, in, the, uh, in the old days of Rome, some of you probably know that uh, they hardly ever shut the gates of war. You know, that was a great sign of whether or not there was war and danger for Rome or whether or not peace was reigning in the empire within Rome. And um, they used to shut the gates of war, of course, when it, was, when it was safe. And Christians, Christians can shut the gates of war on the church. They can ensure that love and peace reign within the church. And they can do it, quite simply, by holding back and not speaking against our neighbor, not entertaining slander against a brother or sister at church. And it mightn't sound like an active thing. It doesn't sound like a very dramatic, active thing, but it's loving. Our reading said, love does no harm to a neighbor. And so we'll close the gates of war, hatred, lies, and strife 
in our church, in Christ Church Mayfair. People ought to trust that when they leave us alone with others, we're not going to talk about them behind their back. We're not going to criticize them privately. We're not going to lower their reputation. We're not going to comment on them unjustifiably. Not to speak against someone is loving. And not just not to speak, but not to hear. Not to hear unkind things about others. The choice we make to to love or to hate depends on how we tolerate this sin. Gossip and slander ought to die out with us. When it reaches us, it ought to die with a wall of silence. In our friendship circles, in our groups, in our workplaces, it ought to die out with a wall of silence from us. But then let's consider what we do say, not just in what we don't say, but in what we do say. Because again, the, the, the commandment in the Bible says to us, just not just put off falsehoods, but speak truthfully to our neighbor. For we are all members of one body, Ephesians 4.25. Not just don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but rather speak what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, God has put words into our heart and our mouths, if we're Christian people, words that are good for building people up, not pulling them down, but building them up. They're great carriers, not of hatred, but of love that builds up. Just consider the difference between these words. I can't believe he did that to me. Well, that will pull down eventually. But what about these words that will build up The Bible says, I forgive you just as the Lord forgave me. God has put words into our mouths and hearts, not to pull people down, but to build them up. So we love our neighbor in what we don't say and in what we do say, this command says. So then as we finish, we have in this command had our hearts exposed as it were. It says that lies and slander that come so easily to us, the talk that seems so cheap and trivial, prove us to be serious and sinister lawbreakers. But at the same time, and in the moment we confess that sin to the Lord's, this command teaches us to love our neighbor in what we say and in what we don't say. Let's pray together as we finish. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Our Father God, we praise you that in this command we do not just find ourselves convicted and guilty before your law, but that we see a way in which we can express love to those around us, those at church, those we work with and live with. And we pray that we would exchange the lies that belong with hatred for the truth that belongs with love. We pray that we would use words that build up and do not pull down. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.